0: If I wanted to emphasize anything about this book, it would be that one of the most important elements is that he's emphasizing every single human being has this potential for reaching their perfection.
1: Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Today, we are joined again by Stephen Hertenstein, if you didn't catch the last show we did with Stephen, we will include a link to it in the show description. But today, we are having him back to talk about the book that we briefly mentioned in our last discussion, The Alchemy of Human Happiness, which is a translation of a single chapter in um, Ibn Arabi's masterwork, the Futuhat al makia which is... Being published, we mentioned this also too last time um, in a, a translation by Eric Winkle, planned to be um, what was it, thirty-nine volumes, something like that. Or, <laughs> um, it's a very long book. So uh, this is one chapter from there, and it's you know it's a, a small or a, substan- a substantial book in itself. So with that said, welcome back to the show, Stephen. Uh, looking forward to talking to you.
0: Thank you very much for having me
1: maybe to start out we can talk a bit about just the the book itself and um i guess why you chose this chapter you know out of all the rest what was it about this book this uh this chapter in the futohat that made you want to translate it and make it make it available and you know in this form
0: Well, I suppose the background to the translation is uh, actually quite simple in a way. I was interested particularly in Ibn Arabi's discussion of ascension, of uh, this imitation of the prophet going through heavens and so on. And it's a journey that he describes in different ways in different places. So I knew of at least three or four different descriptions of it. One is highly autobiographical, uh, which is another chapter in the Futahad. There is this one, which we'll discuss. And then there is one that happened very close to an experience of ascension that he had, which has uh, not been translated, but is extremely difficult language in the uh, Arabic it's all in rhyming prose. So um, at the moment, that was, that was beyond my capabilities for sure. Mm. Um, I also was interested because uh, of something that I'd read about where he's discussing meeting the prophets in each of the heavens, which was a whole uh, kind of uh, discussion I hadn't come across before and wanted to know more about. I even thought of doing a PhD on the whole subject of ascension through the heavens, according to Ibn Arabi, But, um, uh, well, it hasn't happened yet. Let's put it like that. My hair is gray. So um, I also had a personal reason for wanting to do it, which was I wanted to improve my Arabic. So I thought, well, why don't we start a translation with a few friends and we'll go through the, the chapter and see what we make of it. Um, well, uh, it wasn't long before we discovered we'd bitten off more than we could chew, that's for sure. Mm. because Not only because the, the we were learning Arabic on the job, as it were, but also because the, the kind of Arabic that is used is quite difficult. It, a lot of allusions in it, uh, a lot of technical language, and uh, on top of all that, you have the fact that you're dealing with a text by someone known as a Sheikh Al-Akbar, the greatest master. So there's a, a, a quality to the text which is uh, extraordinary. So, And I have to say, I wasn't particularly interested in alchemy as such, mm. which is part of the title of the chapter, or even chemistry. That took me back to school days. <laughs> um, so that's that's the background, really, to the reason why I started translating. And and it was with a group of people. Uh, we went through a first draft, and then it required a lot more work to actually produce it into a book. It, so it's been with me for 10, 15 years, I should mm. think, at least. Mm.
1: That's, uh, well just to go off on a, a little tangent on something that you mentioned there about the Arabic and the nature of the Arabic. Um, cause I don't know any Arabic, you know, the only words I know are the ones that I've come across either watching, uh, or or, um, or, you know, reading these books, just little bits here and there, right. The, and most of it doesn't stick with me, but correct me if I'm wrong, but the nature, the nature of Arabic, the, the etymological structure, um, is very interesting. So, if you have a, a certain word, that word, the, the the word root, which is, I believe, like a three-letter, three-consonant word, will then be, in its various transformations, with its various vowels, have basically a set of meanings. And so, is that part of the is that part of the elusive nature elusive nature of the of the Arabic that you were mentioning, um, or is it uh, well? I guess it's probably also more than that in in the sense of uh, alluding to various other works and concepts. Maybe you could just expand on that on those two aspects of Ibn Arabi and so Arabic.
0: The, the linguistic side, you're absolutely right. Arabic is based on uh, usually triliteral roots, three letters, but sometimes just two. Um, and in fact, some linguists believe that the two is more important than the three. So mm. the three is a kind of development. Um, as for the, the way the, the language works, unlike English, which has borrowed uh, words from other languages, primarily Latin and Greek, and has built them into a, a structurally different language. So it's basically an Anglo-Saxon language that it's got enormous numbers of words that go back over centuries in different languages. Arabic is not like that at all. Arabic is, in that sense, a pure language. It has not borrowed words from somewhere else. And in fact, although there is a, what they call a proto-Semitic root, some language which gave birth to Aramaic, to Hebrew, to Arabic, and other languages of the Middle East, uh, we know of its existence, uh, it has to be there because these languages are, are all of the same family. But Arabic is probably the, the let's say, the purest form of it, simply because the, the, the language was never um, developed through invasion or something like this. So the, the way the structure of the language works is, I mean, it's too complex to go into, but I can give you an example. Please. Um, there is a letter, uh, the first letter of the alphabet uh, is alif, uh, which gives rise to words that we know, alpha, for example, uh, is the Greek version of this letter. Mm. So it's the first letter of the alphabet. Um, and incidentally, it looks like that. It's just a straight line, a vertical line. So there are are symbols associated with the fact that it's a straight line. There are meanings associated with its numerical value, which is one, just like our number one. Then there are also, uh, there is a root from the same three letters, A, L, F, alafa, which has meanings of familiarity, intimacy, and that kind of, uh, intimate association. So you can see now we already have a complex network of um, concepts which are very difficult to translate into another language because they're inherent in the language itself in Arabic. Whereas in another language, when we translate, we actually have to discuss them, we have to explain them as if they were different things when they're, Mm -hmm. they're not really different things, they're different ways of looking at something. And every root in, in Arabic famously was described once as uh, meaning what it means, meaning its opposite, and also something to do with a camel. <laughs> <laughs> it, showed, it shows the, the kind of, you know, the importance of camels in, in mm-hmm. uh, Arab society in general. Uh, as, a, as an expression also beauty because the word camel relates to the same root as beauty hmm. we <laughs> might not find camels beautiful but uh, many do mm-hmm. so this is wow. just one example of the linguistic side of it on the other hand when Ibn Arabi is using the language he's also conscious that uh, the Quran was revealed in Arabic so uh, it's in that sense the, the considered to be a sacred language where the text of the Quran itself is the model for how Arabic should be spoken and written and uh, understood. So he, he will often use a word which has a Quranic root or a Quranic connection expecting you to pick it up. Well, mm. obviously if you don't know the Quran intimately well this is rather a, a complex process, but thank God we have uh, instruments and books for finding out, does this word exist in the Quran, in what way, and so on. And then you discover that, yes, he is alluding to something, not by quoting it, but by using a single word. Uh, wow. It can also be an allusion to a historical event. It could be uh, you know, something which everybody would know in the culture. Mm-hmm. So there are many allusions to, let's say, uh, sacred texts, to events, to other people's writing on top of this elusive quality built into the language itself.
1: Hmm. And that's that's interesting given the subject matter of this chapter in particular, alchemy, because um, a lot of the, I guess you could say, like Western European i'm not, I'm not sure about Eastern like uh, in Taoist alchemy or not but i I know in the in the European alchemical tradition that there's a lot of that kind of linguistic um allu- uh, th- those linguistic allusions and use of words but not not to do necessarily with the kind of actual etymology of the words but more along the lines of puns and um you know, it might be a pun or something that just uh, pretty vaguely might sound like or look like another word, and it's so it's a, a coded language. A lot of times, a lot of the symbols in alchemy are, are these coded words that that might stand for one thing and and serve in order to evoke the meanings, like that uh, that network of meanings that aren't necessarily um, intrinsically related to that word, as they are in in Arabic, for instance. So I think that's um, it's in. For me, that's interesting that these Western alchemists, um, it sounds to me as if they're almost, in their language, um, kind of imitating imitating what is inherent in Arabic itself, for instance.
0: Well, I think one also has to bear in mind that in the case of alchemy, this is a tradition which goes back enormously long Mm -hmm. time, hugely long time, into prehistory. Um, and it comes out in different traditions in different places. So there is Chinese alchemy, as you alluded to. Mm-hmm. There is Greek alchemy. There is Egyptian alchemy. There is Arab alchemy. And it's actually through the Arabs that alchemy comes into the Western world. Mm-hmm. So many of the words that we use, I mean, even the word alchemy itself, is from the Arabic alchemia.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, which people have different derivations for because we're not quite sure where it comes from. Is it an Egyptian word? Is it a Greek word? But we don't know. What, but the word itself is, is, is showing us something about the roots of this uh, science, which some people would call a pseudoscience. I think that's that's our modern take on the thing. Um, one thing that's very important, I think, to understand is that this was a. Um, a knowledge which, in as much as it required writing or transmission by writing, was therefore for literate people, who were therefore experts. If you like, the priestly class. Um, certainly in Egypt, this is the case, uh, and in other cases as well. So, if we go back into the into the older tradition, what we see is is um, a transmission. We know about a certain transmission from Egypt into Arab Sufi culture. This is for sure. So there is a man, for example, working in in um, Egypt called Zulnun al-Misri who is well known for his alchemical connections. And some of that definitely passes through the tradition to Ibn Arabi. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, there's, the problem with alchemy is what we know of it is very very little in terms of old sources. Mm-hmm. So for the Arabs, they believed it went back as far as uh, into prehistory to a man called Hermes, who is identified with the prophet Idris. Mm-hmm. But these are um, <coughs> pre-flood people, so we... <laughs> We we don't, you know, whatever we know is is kind of shrouded in myth. Um, The when the Arabs arrived in Egypt in the seventh century A.D., they encountered alchemy for the first time, and so they began to incorporate the ideas within their own uh, uh, conception of of the world. Um, But this is a, a very ancient tradition. We could say Mesopotamian, Indian, Ancient Greek, Gnostic, Christian, Hebrew, Chinese, mm-hmm. all of them melded in some way or another. But every single aspect of it, uh, when we look at medieval texts, for example, in the, in the Christian West, these are, these are coded references often drawing on sources we no longer have access to. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore they're quite difficult to understand. But in the light of the Arab tradition, they're a bit easier because, in many ways, some of the Arab tradition was more explicit. Hmm.
1: Well, I want to get into a bit of um, what Ibn Arabi says about alchemy, but first, just on what you what you just said about um, kind of the the key the key to reading these texts and to, to kind of unlocking the 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 code of what they're actually saying. Um, in the, I, I I recently read a Taoist alchemy book um, by a guy named uh, Wang Mu or Wang Mu, not sure how to pronounce it. Um, and he was kind of early mid twentieth century, so he's a contemporary, almost a contemporary, you know, for for us. And he was part of, um, I believe, the the southern southern Taoist uh, nidan. Um, lineage, and basically he he lays out all of the, um, well he goes through a one of the classical Taoist alchemical texts and and kind of organizes it in a way to un- that's easy to understand, and then looks at all the symbols and say, oh well, all of these symbols are equivalent, all these symbols symbols and images. So whenever this author uses this word, um, you know like the the golden or the 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 muddy pellet or something, he's talking about this and then so he kind of systematizes it and, and gives all the answers essentially and then um, relates them all to like the the four alchemical stages or the, the three and then the preparatory stage but um, what I found interesting about the the Taoist alchemy is that it's all the, the at least in this tradition in this lineage it's all related to basically a body a bodily practice like a, like Qigong so so there's first uh, preparing the ground I think is the is the first step which is which has to be done before the the refining the refining stages are where you you know develop the elixir and uh, and then develop the the uh, the embryo and you know then achieve the the final transformation. So it's uh, it, it it in itself is a very interesting tradition to look at just to see how the how it developed in one way in in China. And but uh, one of the things that stood out was a direct similarity to Ibn Arabi about basically there being two modes, two two varieties of transformation. Um, one being the like the mode of I can't remember what they call it in the Taoist uh, tradition, but in in Ibn Arabi, as you translate it, one is origination and the other is elimination. Um, basically, the, the the way I understood that was origination was kind of like uh, the kind of inherent development of of one's inner potential towards perfection and then elimination was basically the removal of defects that have been acquired um through life up until the time you know of the 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 process of elimination so um i'm wondering if you could just give us an overview of how um how ibn arabi or maybe even the the arabs the arabic culture in general saw alchemy and and then relate that, uh, or just talk a bit also about the, those two processes and how those fit into the overall framework of kind of the the alchemical worldview.
0: Um, well, so I, I think there are there are uh, two levels of this that we need to discuss. First of all, what Ibn Arabi calls natural alchemy, and what he calls spiritual alchemy. So. Um, Natural alchemy, he's really talking about an external process um, which we know from the, you know, the idea of transmuting lead into gold. And uh, according to him, there there are two ways in which this can be done, as you mentioned, origination, and the other is by elimination of defect. So we have to go back to understand kind of what the context for this is. Their idea was that minerals in the earth um, are just really like beings on top of the earth. So we, we as human beings, we are born, we grow, we reach maturity and we die uh, physically. So there is a, um, a process we can see also in the plant world where this is happening of this growth, development and maturity. The same thing was believed to happen in the mineral world. Now, that means that when you open up the earth, you are seeing, let's say, lead. uh, And in another place, you see tin. In another place, you see copper. These were considered to be the same substance at different stages of development. Mm. So the end development of them was gold. If they reached it. So that was their, let's say their their real condition was gold. So it might be that from the point of view of origination, that this, uh, this process we can say of coming into the maturity of a metal means that the potential for gold is already present. So we can see origination as meaning you are created with this potential. So the process in time is the playing out of how this potential is achieved or reached. If it's interrupted, then you get one of the other metals. So the job of the alchemist was to intervene and uh, in correlation with the uh, um, the timing of the heavens you could intervene and produce a transformation which would uh, eliminate the defect that had had taken hold of this substance and therefore you could move it along as mm. it were along the process mm-hmm. so the creation of gold was not real is, is really a bit of a misnomer what they were what they were seeing as uh, they were intervening in a process uh, to to produce what should have been produced in the natural way, mm. but for some reason had been interfered with. Rather like, um, you know, if you get sick, your nat- the natural um, state of a body is to be healthy. So when you get sick, the, the uh, intervention is to restore the balance in the body. And that's called elimination of defect in that sense. So that's that's the natural side of it. But then this has a then we can transpose the whole thing into the spiritual, which is where we start, where it starts to get interesting, if you like. Because what what do we mean by uh, the potential of a human being? What is the the, uh, the perfectibility of a human being? What condition can be reached which corresponds to the gold? of this uh, metallic substance, what what is the gold of human nature? So I think that that, um, one one should bear in mind, we are looking at a process of transformation and also of, maybe we could call it expert intervention Mm. to remove the defect and allow the natural process of development to reach its proper conclusion. So, a spiritual master in that sense, their job is precisely that, to orientate the person towards their perfection and eliminate the defect mm. that has taken hold of them, let's say, and arrested the development. Mm. So that's a kind of general overview, I guess, of the, of the, of the understanding of the process. Um, obviously, there is this word uh, elixir that you mentioned, uh, again, another Arabic word borrowed into the in, you know into English mm-hmm. um, as as many many words associated with uh, alchemy are basically Arabic in origin, alembic, alimbic, and so on and so on. So the elixir, what is it? Well, it can be either um, quicksilver, which is created by vapors, they said. Uh, generated by the interaction of water in air, or it can be sulphur, which is created by smoke fumes, which are generated by the interaction of earth and air. So you can see that that the four elements are now beginning to play a part in all this, mm-hmm. in the in the conception of things. Quicksilver is female, sulphur is masculine. So when they're in equal balance in the chemical wedding, then gold is generated. If they're not in equal balance, some other metal will be generated. So, what we need to understand in it is there's a symbology behind. First of all, the the physical hierarchy of matter is symbolic. Secondly, that there is a male and a female progenitor in all forms of matter, including the metallic. Which for us, of course, we I mean we don't look at Chemical substances that way at all. Um, but they were looking at it, you know, through that lens of uh, the interaction of the active masculine element and the receptive feminine element. Mm-hmm. When we get into the into the spiritual realm, the same principles are in, are in play. So you've probably come across the idea that the spiritual master's real name is the red sulfur. Mm-hmm. This is the, the one who uh, is capable of transforming others to the degree of gold. So they don't do it by an external process. They do it by adjusting the, the, the balance, as it were. But it's a mm-hmm. masculine element. It's, a, it's a, an active force that is generating this change. So
3: in that case, uh, the other elixir in the spiritual alchemy was, uh, I believe, Ibn Arabi calls it the uh, the private face. Served the purpose as the the other elixir. So would that be the feminine, um, the feminine element in transformation?
0: Well, in a, in a sense, you're absolutely right, and it's very interesting that he he describes the elixir of the Gnostics or those who who really know. This is what he calls the private face. Which is the, the direct connection between each being and their origin and their source. So, there is, in that sense, um, you can say, no, the, there's nothing intervening in reality between the, the person or the thing and their origin. So, they do not have to study, you know, they don't have to learn. This is an intrinsic connection, which we have forgotten. By definition, we've forgotten it. If we knew it, we would be already, as it were, enlightened. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would know who we are, where we are, where we're headed and so on. Uh, And we would know that what we have come from is what we are going back to. So we would know many things because of this private face. So in Ibn Arabi's description of ascension, he is very keen to point out that there are essentially two modes of knowledge. Um, so I'm jumping the gun with your discussion probably, because this is a question that everybody likes to ask about this chapter, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because he is, he is uh, developing a kind, almost a novel uh, uh, in, in, in terms of his description of, of ascension or the process of human transformation. So he says there are these two travelers, one of whom travels by virtue of the private face, who for the sake of argument, I mean, he he, he calls it two different names at the beginning. One is one is the, the, the follower, uh, which we could translate as the, uh, the imitator even. It's somebody who, uh, as I explained in the introduction to the book, uh, acts through mimesis, like a baby does. A baby learns through imitation of what they see around them, testing it out, and so on. They learn directly. It's not because somebody told them something. No, they are inherently copying and listening and adjusting, and so on. That's on one side. Of course, we lose this as we grow older, we we develop our reason. So As we develop our reason, we start to think about things. So how does this relate to me? And this notion of self then begins to predominate in the person so that they can only learn by relying on themselves, on what they already know. And therefore their relationship to new knowledge has changed because they've got old knowledge to work against new knowledge. Whereas a baby doesn't have this it is laying down, as it were, new, you know, new neural pathways all the time. So, uh, this these two processes, which are going on, which in modern uh, neuroscience they would refer probably to left and right brain uh, processing, um, this is inherent to all of us, but they're depicted in this chapter as two characters one is a rational thinker who uses reason one is a let's say a a mystic who uses their direct insight and their direct connection with the source and the fruits of their activity uh, are different Mm
1: -hmm. yes maybe maybe we can get into some of those fruits (laughs) yeah
3: because it seems to me like the rational thinker gets abused quite a bit
0: (laughs) 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 Well, <laughs> he just get, doesn't get a fair shake before we, before we get into that I'll give you a different example where you can see the same polarity in existence and this is something familiar to everybody and that's food something we all take for granted but we have two kind of alchemical processes, first of all there is cooking, which has transformed the food from its raw state into a cooked state and once done it doesn't go back mm-hmm. so then this has to be ingested and refined. So when it's ingested, we have a, as it were, a choice as human beings. Are we aware that this food is being uh, digested and refined into higher degrees of consciousness than the food ingredient? Or, because from a natural point of view, it's just a chemical process, The food simply metamorphoses into uh, gross forms of energy and it feeds the physical appetite. From a spiritual point of view, food is quite different. Food is the means by which spiritual energy is generated through this process of transformation. Mm. So you can see that We're glimpsing something about the nature of matter being transformed. I mean, if you think about it, how does matter get transformed? Yes, we know the chemical processes, but we don't understand necessarily the internal conscious, consciousness processes. Um, Mm -hmm. And as an example of the practicality of this in in the Islamic culture, before you sit down to a meal, you will will set an intention and say bismillah in the name of God. Why? Because uh, this is an aspiration to participate consciously in this process of ascension from the material to spirit. So it requires dedication and it requires intention. So these are two absolutely key ingredients in the process. Um, And it's one of the reasons why in Islamic culture, for example, so much attention is paid to the intention behind an action rather than the simple carrying it out. So um, it said, for example, you know, that what what the divine really looks at in a human being is the intention. If they manage to carry it out, they get a double blessing. But it's the intention that that is primary.
2: Mm. So... Uh, Stephen, this this idea of the two paths, um, the difference between the disciple or follower and the uh, rational thinker, um, as you started to lay it out, is really one of the more, I think, fascinating parts of this chapter because um, Al-Arabi seems to be saying uh, a little something about the nature of... Um, Intention and, and attitude, as you were uh, just describing, mm-hmm. and the idea that uh, there is something about— um, and maybe this is just my own projection uh, of, of what he's saying and, and isn't correct— but that there's something uh, more innocent and um, intuitive and heartfelt about someone who is willing to be a disciple— willing to recognize a teacher or guides that are above him or her uh, versus someone who is solely or primarily reliant upon one's own um uh powerful but limited intellectual and rationalizing capability uh and he and he really in your translation it's really driven home that that the uh the, the disciple um, reaps all these kinds of fruits by allowing him or herself to, to follow, to, uh, to be shown all of these things in these different stations of the, of the spheres where the, uh, the, the rational thinker gets shown some facts about planets and, and gnashes his teeth a little later for, for all the, the limits of his learning. So, um, you know, what, what of, of that description is, is correct or, Uh, Maybe you can flush some of that out for us.
0: Absolutely. You've put your finger on one of the the more, in a way, exciting parts of this chapter. Um, So to give an example, um, I was just thinking, because you've mentioned private face and so on, um, in the first heaven, which is associated with the moon, the planet of the moon, and the prophet Adam. So just for those who... Haven't read the book yet. Uh, the rational thinker is met by the moon and goes off with the moon and gets the, let's say, the lunar sciences. And the follower or disciple is received by Adam. So, what's going on? I mean, first of all, we notice that this happens in each heaven that one is met by the planet, one is met by a prophet associated with that planet. And Ibn Arabi is quite clear that the the prophet or this prophetic reality is the ruler of the planet, the person responsible, the spiritual authority, if you like, belongs with the the human being, not with the planet. So one aspect of this is that it very clearly shows that for Ibn Arabi, uh, the human being is at the center of things. It's not uh, matter or planets or, Um, uh, let's say the cosmos itself at the center. No, the cosmos is under the rulership of the human. And he means that quite seriously, not the human that we know, but the human reality. So these prophets are shown to to have knowledges of states and degrees and uh, ways of being which uh, Ibn Arabi kind of lays out. So, so Adam's teaching is concerned with teaching primarily through the private face, and it's at this point that it, that in the in the text Ibn Arabi mentions the private face and says the follower knows this, the rational thinker has no access to this at all. Mm-hmm. So. We have to consider, this is a, a crucial part for understanding the whole context of it, because um, as you put your finger on Adam, when a person uh, thinks that they can uh, work everything out through their mind, they are relying on their on their um, rational faculty entirely, then um, for Ibn Arabi, this is a limitation. And the person who is in this condition has no access and no knowledge of something which is intrinsic to to us as human beings, which is at a deeper level, which we can call heart, uh, we can call it by many names, Mm -hmm. we can call it intuition, insight, and so on. It is not emotion, I should hesitate to say, it's not I feel this or I feel that, no. It is a direct perception which only the person who has it has. Mm -hmm. And the realization that, let us say, that in that sense, each of us is a a circle around which the whole cosmos is turning because we cannot be outside our center. We can never be other than what we actually are. But this is just the beginning of the transformation process. It has to start with this um, understanding that we, we have never, ever been un- anything other than gold, if you like, mm. if you put it in alchemical terms. So we are not, it's difficult to explain, but uh, um, most people conceive of transformation as going from A to B. So there is some unrefined state and they're going to get to some refined state. Uh, But this is in time. This is a temporal, apparently temporal activity in the mind. And it's a mental construct. It's not according to how things actually are. Because according to how things actually are, the potential of a person, which is always present, is already complete. So the real question is, why is it not... um, how can I say? Why is it not being realized mm-hmm. at each moment? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and just
0: once, to- a, once a person... Sorry, just to finish. Once a person gets to the level of the moon, this is precisely what starts to happen with them. Because they have left the earthly... Let's say the earthly realm in that sense symbolizes um, you are either here or there you are either in this direction or that direction from the point of view of the moon the earth is one whole as we know from the wonderful pictures you know been sent back ever since the 1960s so we we see the earth differently today to anything that uh, our ancestors were able to do we can see it physically but spiritually this knowledge was always known this is not new This is just, as it were, the manifestation of something, which is an interior knowledge.
2: Mm -hmm. I really. Oh, I'm sorry. Just a quick follow up to that. Um, One other thing that you uh, that's mentioned in the translation, Stephen, along those lines, was that the um, it's not that the disciple or follower doesn't do some rationalization or some thinking or some questioning. On, on the knowledge that's being presented, or the the truths that are being shown, but but that it's um it's not at the exclusion of this direct experience that he or she also allows to become the knowledge uh, that that there is a a perceiving of truth that that also falls outside of the uh mentation or or um reflection upon knowledge so that was just a a, a qualifier that i felt was was also um relevant
0: very very important because otherwise people think that somehow mysticism and and being rational are completely different things and that if you're you know to be interested in mystical in the mystical you have to be, you know, you have to abandon your reason. No, it's not like that at all, not at all. Mm-hmm. You have to use reason for what it should be used for, which is things to do with this world. But you have to also understand the limits of reason and know how to go beyond it, how to go through the door, as it were, that, that this reason imposes upon you. Um, so to give you an example, if you don't know something, uh, you have to have the humility to ask we know this in daily life, but how is it put into practice in the interior life is the real question. So a person who knows this intimately well and knows the limit of what they, what they have come to and knows that there is always more, is always in a state of being informed and being uh, uh, a state of progress, let's say, towards um, deeper understanding towards uh, they're not they're not confined by their own mentality things can be changed in other words so we come back to the idea of transformation it's uh, it's a question of what it is in us that can be transformed and what it is in us that is uh, actually always the, the same thing
3: okay so I just wanted to read uh, a paragraph from the, uh, that chapter on the first heaven, Adam and the moon, uh, because I think it goes to what you and Elon have been talking about. So Ibn Arabi writes, and you translate, Everything that the rational thinker acquires is also acquired by the disciple, but not everything that the disciple obtains is obtained by the rational thinker. The rational thinker cannot grow and develop except in sadness and distress. And they cannot confirm the truth until their journey comes to an end and they return to their body. They make this journey like someone asleep, who sees it all in their dream while knowing that they are asleep. They do not believe that they will ever wake up and be able to start daily life again and be relieved of their distress. So they remain disturbed and fearful of what has happened to them during their journey, gripped by the constriction, and they cannot progress after that. This is what upsets them. The disciple is not like this. He sees the constant progress which accompanies him wherever he goes, because it comes from the private face, which is, recognize, which is recognized only by the one who possesses it. And you know that's that gets to kind of the symbolic and multiple layers of meaning. I think because there are um, there is clearly he's making a, a distinction between two different personality types, but also. Um that you can see at least you can see uh you know different people who would um who were are more rational and then you have people who are disciples and you see that in society, you see that in cultures. but then you also get the idea that, uh, that at the core of it he's talking about this this agony within the individual that is starting this uh, transformation process of of i mean I couldn't i mean I kind of i I wonder and if maybe you could say, you could tell us is this somewhat autobiographical you think of um of his own experiences of his own um rational mind um trying to trying to come to grips with what he had seen in in his journeys and understanding that oh, this was um um you know this was his way of kind of describing that and just leading the individual uh, along that path
0: Actually, that's quite a complicated question you've asked, but uh, (laughs) very simple about it. I I think one of the reasons for translating this chapter originally was it is a universal chapter. Not all the chapters in the book uh, have this kind of universal quality Uh, in in the sense that it applies uh, to all human beings, whoever they are, wherever they are. So I don't see these two travelers particularly as two independent people. I see them as two sides of ourselves Mm. and uh, two approaches, let's say. So rather than thinking of them as two independent people whose character traits we can see in others, if we think of them as two um, approaches within ourselves, I think it becomes easier to understand um, at, at least intellectually, the, the, um, the real core of what Ibn Arabi is talking about. This is not a matter of being devotional when he's talking about the follower. It's not devotional practice in the sense that we might understand it, because somebody could be involved in devotional practice at the level of actions, and they're actually thinking about something completely different while doing their prayers so what we're talking about is people who uh, or aspects of ourselves who who are striving to know and in, our, in in the manner of our striving is determined the fruit of our striving so if we seek to know from our position from ourselves then inevitably we will encounter sooner or later the limitation of that Mm -hmm. because our effort is limited our knowledge is limited even our aspiration is limited because it's fixed to certain things and not others. Mm -hmm. So because of this aspiration, we are actually uh, missing the moment because we are, as it were, taking ourselves out of it and beyond it to somewhere else that we imagine is more perfect, more real, more beautiful, whatever.
1: Mm.
0: So this process within us is something we have to come to terms with. Every human being has to come to terms with it. So, learning what is meant by a follower is actually very key to it. If it, this is why he's so emphatic about the about the private face, it's where it's where it starts and ends in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, each person has already a di- a, is directly facing their reality. At each moment, we are facing our reality. The question is, do we recognize it? Mm-hmm. To what extent do we recognize it? Because that's all that's asked of us is recognition. Hmm. So you know, um, what we're, what's laid out in the chapter is some of the knowledge, let's say, knowledge in inverted commas, that will come through uh, facing reality as it is, Without um, trying to turn it into something comfortable, uncomfortable, you know what? what, If it's comfortable, fine. If it's uncomfortable, (laughs) fine. What's the difference? That's about that's about our process. But the reality of things is always being manifest to us. It's always being given to us. So for Ibn Arabi, the, the, the whole process of being in this world is about recognition, recognition of wh- who, it, who it is who is revealing what. Because at each moment, it's different.
2: Just a quick comment. Um, mm-hmm. by, by saying that these are actually two uh, features of, of a single person, that, that we can go in neither direction and sometimes we alternate it it clicked so many things uh, for me personally when you when you mentioned that Stephen uh, that's a great conception because uh, we we can we might have intuitions or um, inspirations we were just talking about this on our previous show about um, intelligent design and you know it's just like you said it's a question of recognizing real knowledge, even though it flies in the face of our rational thinking. Sometimes we might perceive something and, and decide to ignore it because our rational minds decide that it's invalid for whatever reason. So, uh, just, just a wonderful way to understand how it is we might as individuals, uh, hone in further on our own, uh, perceiving of knowledge. Where where it doesn't always look like something that comes of a uh, uh, an intellectual process. So great stuff. That's all I wanted to say on that.
0: <laughs> well, thank you very much. I think that I mean just to say that you know so many people think of Ibn Arabi as a as a great intellectual. He's not. He's a he's a great teacher about human nature, <laughs> and that's a very big difference. Yes, it looks like when you study it, it's very complicated, all these ideas and words and all the rest of it. But actually what it is, is a, is a kind of um, construction of the way things actually are. If you were looking from the top downwards of a pyramid, you would see everything. So in these descriptions, one has to bear in mind in a way that even as these people are ascending through, the, through these degrees, they are already there.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: In reality, they are already looking down. So what is being given to us is like a, a kind of um, a map, a road map, let's say, of human experience mm-hmm. and human understanding that uh, is quite secure. It, the, the symbols may be a little bit uh, unfamiliar they may be something we have to, you know, come to grips with in some way. But I'm quite convinced that it's a language for describing something which is almost indescribable, which is the the kind of mechanics of human transformation and perfection. Mm-hmm. That's
1: that's one of the things that stood out for me in this um, is that is Ibn Arabi's. Um, Always bringing it down to well, even when he seems to be, you know, taking a far out trip into the realms of, uh, you know, imaginal space, there's always a, a human um, relevance and practicality to it, either implicit or explicit, and that reminds me. I, I was looking for it right now. I couldn't find it. I thought it was right at the beginning where he says. Essentially introducing the topic, I'm going to paraphrase. He basically says, "So I've been, you know, I've uh, I've heard all of this alchemy stuff, and we know all this. And as far as I know, no one's actually told you what it's all about. So I'm just going to tell you right now. I I don't think anyone else has done it. So this is what he, what all this stuff is actually talking about. And he mentions that alchemy is is essentially about transformation in three worlds. I think he says in one place, like the 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 physical, the 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 spiritual, and the divine." And, um, and then at one point, um, I think, well, this is kind of related. Um, I'm, I want to read a quote and then I'll try to make a connection between it and what I just said. So he says, um, this is in the section on the, the constellations and gardens. So this is in the n- near the end of the, of the chapter. He writes, the reason why this transformation is so rapid and constant is that is, the origin is is that the origin is like that. His bounty towards the created world is in accordance with what the reality of his level entails, so that he is constantly creating and the creation is perpetually in need. The whole of existence is perpetually in motion. But in this world and the hereafter, both in this world and the hereafter, because the creative act does not happen from non-movement. From God's side, there are constant facings and inexhaustible words, which is his saying. What is with God remains. Thus with God is the facing towards a thing, which is his saying, when we desire it, and the word of presence, which is his saying to each thing that he desires be, with the meaning that is appropriate to his majesty. Um... The, the thought in there that struck me was, on the one hand, I was talking about him bringing it always to the, the human level and the practical level, but then at the same time, there is always the, the deeper implication and the kind of ultimate truth behind those human levels. So in, in this case, there are two of those. One is that change and transformation, as he points out elsewhere, are universal this is going on everywhere. It's going on at all levels. It's it it applies to everything. That um, even the mineral world, there is always change and transformation going on. And then naturally, as we can see in ourselves, and as we can kind of reason analogically, it happens. It, it happens with ourselves, and it will above too. So there will be. Well, just uh, incidentally, I think that's interesting in light of modern science, where we can see the these constant processes of of change and transformation happening, like at the subatomic level at and and within atoms, there's always energetic transfers of information and, and transformations going on with uh, even in basic chemistry, like when, you know, you just, you fire a certain photon at some atom and, and something, you know, magical will happen, even though most people don't see it as magical. Um, but there's something similar going on at the human level that there are these, these Changes and transformations that we that we go through constantly, and then as a as a spiritual master Ibn Arabi will be the one to to guide the development to to identify and eliminate the defects. But then the ultimate goal of all of this, because there is a there is a direction that all of this is heading. There's a goal to, towards which all of this is heading, and that is, um, I guess, the i i think that the the way to put the ultimate goal would be like the the realization and the recognition of unity of the you know the um how's it called in in arabic is that the the tawhid is
0: well, tawhid is one way to express it yeah mm-hmm. yep.
1: and and all the all the all the different significances and meanings of that is that that's that's what this alchemical process is. That's the gold. That is the, the perfection. That is the potential inherent in us to which we are striving and to which we will develop with the proper elimination of defects. And um, and so there is going back to my my first statement about how he introduces the 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 topic of alchemy. I find it um, al- almost funny. Uh, well, it is I, it is quite a bit humorous. Like when I read that, he, he's he's basic, he almost offhandedly, or you know, flippantly, saying, "Oh well, this is what this all means. You know, it's 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 all just this exquisite, you know, beautiful transformational process about the return to oneness in God and and the realization of the mm-hmm. the unity of all existence, and uh, and here's how it all is." Then he kind of lays it out. So. Um, uh, yeah, I just wanted to string those thoughts together and see if I could come up with something coherent. Um, <laughs> did, you, did you have any um, any thoughts on any of those comments that I made?
0: Well, I think I think your your uh, your emphasis on transformation and transfer of information is very interesting because mm. um, you know transformation at the form level is one aspect of it. The other aspect is something which we, we call transfer of information. And that is something which is, is, the, um, is, as it were, being carried, the knowledge which is being carried by this uh, transformational process. Hmm. So it's interesting that in, in the modern world, we talk about transformation in both, on both sides. One is a, 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 on the form level and one on this informational level. Which is directly equivalent to Ibn Arabi's idea that, yes, everything is in a process of transformation, but at the same time, there is a, a purpose behind it. There is a meaning behind it, which is being carried through it, and which has to be recognized. That's why I put the emphasis earlier on on recognition, because that's the the if you like the the job of a human being is to is to be. Uh, one who can recognize what is actually being displayed in Mm. in this uh, uh, existence. And the reason I'm using the word recognition is because part of the chapter title uh, in Arabic is on the uh, Marifa Kimia Asada. So we have three terms. We have Marifa, which means recognition. We have Kimia, which is alchemy. And then we have saada, which is happiness. So this first one, the recognition side of it, is therefore, um, if you like the primary one, it is recognizing uh, the, um, when we say manifestation, we recognize who manifests in what form. We're not confused by the form, and we're not confused by the meaning of the form. We we see that is full recognition, full marifa. Yeah. So, in order to do that, we have to know the degrees of existence on one side, uh, which we in Arabi are, are twenty-eight and correspond to lunar mansions and Arabic letters and all sorts of correspondences. Um, but um, this, the 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 importance of these twenty-eight degrees is that they they represent um, that all the potential differences of uh, of being so just like the moon goes through different phases it's in one respect full that it has all these different phases to it even invisibility as mm-hmm. you know in opposition to its visibility all of those are like the possibilities of being the possible variations mm-hmm. in which light can be manifest so we can say that that being able to recognize um, each manifestation, and where it is in this uh, arena, this circular repeating cycle, um, the, that metaphor means that, that the human being would be capable of recognising every manifestation for what it actually is. They know what light is, they know what the full moon is, but they are also able to recognise when the moon is only, let's say, in a quarter. They're not confused by the quarterness. Mm -hmm. So most people are very confused by quarterness and then they end up sort of saying, that's what the moon is. We all have this tendency to, you know, because we, yes, we've recognized this, this is what it is. And then he's very keen to say, it, this process of uh, development in a human being is is moving from one stage of understanding, one stage of knowledge, to another one, to another one, to another one, incessantly. Because that is the nature of being itself. It's uh, it, mm. it has to be recognized, it has to be known, and it has to be returned for what it is. Because mm. if we don't recognize it, what we're actually doing is um, misrepresenting it, as it were.
1: Mm. That... Reminded me of a footnote on the next page after the the bit I just quoted, and this will be an example of the uh, what you said, what we were talking about right at the beginning about the the linguistic nature of uh, of Arabic. Just so, just so we can get another example of it. Um, First, the sentence in the in Ibn Arabi's text is: "These facings and words in the treasuries of generosity belong to each other as it receives existence." Belong to each thing as it receives existence. Sorry, and then the footnote is: the notion of divine generosity, jud, is related etymologically and cosmologically to the coming about of existence itself, wujud. Um, so I thought that was a, a really, I made a note of that one just because I thought it was such a such a good juxtaposition of uh, of of meanings that this this constant um, almost uh, like reception of being and and attributes and all of these all of these things is is the the primary like manifestation of of generosity of like the the gift of being and the and the gift of of the present moment because every moment that we find ourselves in along with being like a a state of transformation like looking at it from another angle it's a it's a a bringing into being of of everything at every instant um we're like the the manifestation of i guess one way to it might be the manifestation of 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 numerous names names of god at any given time and that reception of those possibilities is is uh god's generosity towards us so like the the, that being itself is a um like a gift and therefore every moment is a gift and inherent in any moment is the um the potential for these transformations to take place too and to to eliminate those defects and to and to recognize what is going on, um, so I just thought that was a that, that just made me think of that example of of generosity and its and its etymological and cosmological relation to being itself.
0: mm mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, it's absolutely right, and uh, and such a fundamental point for Ibn Arabi that um, that being itself is is the effect, as it were the, the consequence of generosity mm-hmm. and pure gift. So this, this um, principle runs through everything for him, even down to his first teacher uh, in Seville uh, saying to him, sit with the one who gives freely. Now the name which is used, al-Wahhab, is um, the divine name which expresses the, this, this giving without uh, requiring anything from the person to whom it's given. It is pure giving, sheer generous giving. So, he, so his advice from his first teacher is, sit with this uh, quality of being um, until uh, he speaks to you without veil. So what he's referring to, going back to our earlier discussion, is this is the way, if you want a way of uh, Ibn of returning to, to the direct perception of the private face through which God will speak to you without, without a veil because there is no veil between the, the divine and you. Any veil you think is there is a construct. So what removes the construct is this this quality of pure, beneficent giving, which is constant in the universe. Mm -hmm. So one can say, well, uh, other creatures know this already. They never lose this. So a tree inherently is in praise because it is always uh, conscious of receiving this gift of being, and I'm not talking about just the gift of rain and the gift of nutrient from the soil and wind and so on. No, I'm talking about the gift of being itself, plus all those qualities that Mm -hmm. that surround anything. So we have these two aspects. The, The gift may be something, as it were, external to us, coming to us, given to us, but it's also the, the giving of the being of us in the first place. Both sides are pure, generous gift. Mm-hmm. So for someone who who comes to this in themselves, into this realization, then that means that they have started the journey of the private phase to whatever degree. So from then on, their their learning process will occur through this quality of gift it's not in other words you still have to make effort you still have to try and you know do things but the effort has been transformed now from uh something that is done in order to achieve something it's done in gratitude for what you are already receiving Mm.
2: very good (laughs) and that and that certainly feels a lot nicer than uh then begrudgingly, you know, doing one's duties and and uh, kind of being resentful and and uh, you know being dragged by the universe by, by one's responsibilities to do something in um, in a state of gratefulness and graciousness and uh, not that I don't experience those other things too I'm you know I'm, I'm still working on it but but that seems to be a a it's a lot more joyful. To to do things in uh, in appreciation of uh, those things that we've been given in joy in um, in, in generosity. Well, uh, yeah, that's why you know it's
3: titled the alchemy of human happiness. Just I think we all just became instantly happy when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A transmutation occurred. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: think, I mean, that's that's one term we haven't talked about, and maybe we mm. should just mm. to clarify what. What he's talking about with happiness again—it's a loaded word in the Arabic. Saada um, uh, or Sa'id would mean also the the blessedness of being in paradise. So, um, in one sense, we can we can speak about it as as a uh, let's say a state of blessing. But not a state like we experience here where you kind of have it for a bit and then you come out of it. No, this is a recognition of blessing itself. So that's why I was putting the emphasis on on the recognising the the giver of, of bounty, of the pure giver, because that's the quality that, that would be experienced by somebody in paradise. That is exactly what paradise is. They realise that that's what the world is. That's what as all of existence is, is, a, is, is gift. So that's why a person we can say is in paradise as opposed to not being in paradise where they would be distanced from this, uh, this uh, condition of grace. So that's on, on, on one side. Uh, on the other side, it's important to realize that what we call being happy and the striving for happiness is usually loaded with um, uh, self-constructs of happiness. I'm happy if this, or I'm happy if that. Um, And it's usually to do with a state of happiness that somebody has tasted, which they're always trying to recapture or uh, return to. So that's a very different perception. So the happiness that's being talked about in this, is uh, what the Greeks used to call eudaimonia, which is um, self-fulfillment. It's that kind of happiness that was well known to the Greeks as you know, it's not about uh, whether I'm happy or not in that sense, in a a transient way, but whether I am deeply uh, content with being exactly who I am, where I am. That's that's, uh, more of the quality of it. So uh, you know, f- for example, Ibn Arabi will say something like, "the the happy person is somebody who is pleasing to their Lord," meaning that um, they know that what, who, and what they are is already agreed to. It's already uh, accepted. So this is a, this is a way of describing an internal condition that. Um, uh, people can people have the potential to reach everybody has the potential to reach and if I wanted to emphasize anything about this book it would be that one of the most important elements is that he's emphasizing every single human being has this potential for reaching their perfection so it's not a question of special people or of you know only certain mystics do this no this is something And that's why I said the the chapter is universal in its application. It applies to everyone. And we may, each of us will have different understandings, different tastes in it. So some of my uh, colleagues and companions uh, have been studying this text in Australia for uh, two and a half years, um, meeting every month and reading parts of it. And they started going quite fast and then they got much slower. So sometimes they would spend two hours discussing one page. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And for many of them, it was the first time that they had read something in company like that, with people of um, similar intention and aspiration and trying to, um, let's say, imbibe as much as possible what was being uh, laid out before them, the banquets that's, that's put in front of them. And I think for many of them, the actual reading process itself was quite a transformative experience because reading with other people uh, kind of slows us down, makes, allows us to ask questions, allows uh, different viewpoints to come, which we haven't considered, and all of that enrich is an enrichment through reading the text together. Whereas if you're reading on your own, which is what we're all encouraged and trained to do, you know, um, it's a solitary activity. And, um, you know, we probably read quite fast. Uh, we skim over things, we miss a lot. Uh, it's a very different experience. So in terms of reading books, I would just say, I am absolutely sure, in my own experience, that that reading these kind of texts together in small groups, friends and so on, is a is a hugely beneficial way of uh, exploring and uh, discussing these these questions, mm. which apply to every human being.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, maybe can we do a little bit of that right now, um, <laughs> because. Or sorry, how much time do you have, Stephen? Um, are are you good for another like I don't know five ten minutes or something like that?
0: Five ten minutes is fine.
1: Okay, so I had a question about uh, about this section because I'm not not quite sure um, the the context. It's about it, it references music, so I guess I'll just read it first and then I'll state my question. So this is in the chapter or the section on the footstool and the supreme light. Um, It's on page 141 of my copy. So, Ibn Arabi writes Then he leaves this place and is plunged into the supreme light, where love ecstasy overcomes him. This light is the presence of spiritual states, whose power is manifest in human individuals. People are usually overwhelmed when they listen to music. When these states descend upon them, they pass through the spheres. The movement of the spheres can have happy melodies that enrapture the ears, something like the music of the water wheel. The melodies clothe the states, descending with them upon living souls during sessions of audition. So the question I had about that was specifically in regard to just this little bit. People are usually overwhelmed when they listen to music. When these states descend upon them, they pass through the spheres. So I wanted to know when he says or what your thoughts on this are when he's saying that when people that people are overwhelmed when they listen to music is this like the the kind of heavenly music or is he talking about music in general um because when I first read that it sounds like he's talking about music in general and that, but then that would imply that listening to music in general is uh fo- it follows that when these states descend upon them they pass through the spheres so actually listening to music and being overwhelmed by the the music itself is somehow equivalent to passing through the spheres um is that what he's saying or is or is he saying something else or do you do you have any thoughts one way or the other
0: you missed out the following line didn't you
1: um which one
0: certain certain point um because he's really talking about um i would say the the states of passion or love ecstasy which overtake people. Well, it might happen, um, you can see it in, in pop concerts.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You could see it in classical concerts. You can see it in many different forms. So he's not just talking about the heavenly music. He's talking okay. about music in general mm-hmm. as its effect on people um, where it, it, it changes your state. And it doesn't happen all the time, obviously, but sometimes it it can transport somebody. So the question is, what is actually happening? People think it's the music. People think it's uh, the example he gives of um, attachment to a slave girl or a slave boy. Whatever thing the soul is taken up with, that linkage is really, A love of divine beauty clothed in imaginal form. Mm -hmm. So we've got a we've got therefore the distinction between divine beauty itself and the clothing. And that's exactly, you know, that's in a nutshell, the kind of um let's say the understanding of what is actually going on that is key. Mm. Because most people confuse the form with the reality of the form. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So what would the uh, relationship just oh, to say,
0: ahead. just to say the last line of that paragraph? Mm-hmm. Loving ecstasy seizes a person according to what they have created in their imagination. So what what we create in our imagination is, is the enabling mm. of this passion, this actually this divine passion for beauty to occur. Right. Mm. So if we see it that way, we're seeing as it were from the real the real yeah. perspective, as opposed to our personal perspective, which might be quite quite limited in that mm. respect. We don't we don't realize that this this divine passion is the key to it all.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, is that? Uh, I, I think last time we talked, we mentioned a bit about the imaginal realm and how how the the pure meaning will will clothe itself in a certain form in the in the realm, and that might be in, in the form of uh, um, like the kind of the almost the perceived physical form of a prophet or something like that. So, there's a similar thing going on here, where there's there's this divine beauty um that is that then transmits itself to to the, the the person in question through the the form through the form it happens to take in the in the imagination um so I, I'm thinking maybe one example of that might be that like you said like the pop concerts or the or the classical concerts when you look at um well I know that at some point everyone gets to an age where they look at the 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 music that the younger generation is listening to and says oh well that's just garbage right but you see the you see the, the the kids enjoying their music and uh some of them you know entering in a particular state and it seems that the state is same, is the same regardless of the the form that the music is taking um do you think that might be an example of of what he's saying that the the form it takes yeah. in the imagination is different
0: i think this is where it's this is where we start to get into other aspects of it which is um Let's go back to the idea of intention and um, what it stimulates within a human being. So it may stimulate, uh, let's say, sex energy, mm. which is the lowest form of love energy. Um, if it stimulates that and doesn't enable the, 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 this energy to actually rise to, its, to a different level, then it's exactly the same as, um, as say eating food to satisfy your physical appetite. And that's what mm. it is. Mm-hmm. It's no different. In other words, the, the potential for its realization has been minimized to the lowest level. Mm. So this is a very important point because it brings in the question of uh, what people do and how they behave is um, is kind of propagating something. Let's say it's propagating a certain level.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, if the person is has more degree of insight and knowledge, then they are capable of propagating uh, higher degrees of being, higher levels of being than the most basic. Mm-hmm. And this is fundamental to the whole concept of transformation. Um, Because it relies, it it implies that uh, whatever level of of transformation uh, we understand, there is always more. And there will be many aspects of it that we don't understand. And therefore, uh, a certain degree of caution and care is necessary. If we think it's just a matter of turning up the volume and blasting people, you know, until they can't think anymore, Mm -hmm. this is so crude as to be hardly comprehensible. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas uh, viewing this as a sacred act of... uh, where something is being transmitted, which is uh, the most, let's say, the, the closest to beauty, and that would mean at every level, not just, not just uh, sound as it were, but everything about the experience is in keeping with harmony and so on, then um, that will have a different effect on people.
1: That gets into a whole discussion on uh on the nature of of music and the 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 receptivity to of, of you know people to to different forms like I, I the first thing that comes in my head when you were saying that is let's take uh you know you can you can take a a piece of music that um let's say experts in one field or another and that could be experts in like the field of mysticism you know um have a uh, a particular view of a of a of a certain piece of music let's say that is the most sublime and uh, beautiful piece of music imaginable. That will that, that can just you know touch your soul and do and transform you in an instant. And then you have a, a cheap mass-produced pop song, right? And so you play that that genius piece of music to a thousand people. And um, I think in the real world, what will happen is that you'll have some people that will react deeply to it, and then you'll have uh, a bunch of people that it, it's just you know in one ear out the other. It doesn't seem to have affected them on any level whatsoever. And then you play that pop song to a a thousand people, and a lot of them will just be cheering and, and going along with it um you know some won't like it but then you might have one or two people that hear a single note you know that's in there sung by the vocalist that for some reason just touches something like really deep in them it, it's like the uh it's just the perfect note and there's some emotion just something mysterious and enigmatic that's just buried within that note and it touches them so they're like you know weeping at the beauty of this one note while everyone else is just kind of cheering and, and head bopping um that's really interesting,
3: because I can't stop thinking about
1: this, uh, the
3: elixirs that uh, um, <clears throat> ibn Arabi talks about, and the you know the allegorical symbolic nature of of how some something like that from another level uh, can touch somebody and initiate some process of transformation and it can have different forms, maybe and I might be wrong completely wrong about this but there uh but then once you get a taste of it you you start to seek it out in different forms mm-hmm. maybe you, you have you start to de- develop a a different taste a a more refined taste and you want to elevate and so this this name of beauty um or, or whatever name i guess uh, of up a higher of some higher form that touches your heart um and and just kind of serves as a as an elixir of some kind uh, that starts this transformation process, and then you you want to continue to refine your taste, and you you it slowly kind of changes your your being somewhat. You're, you're not the same person that you you were if you allow yourself to follow these these influences and to um, you know to start seeking and to start searching with you know not without necessarily, but internally um as you start searching for that attitude for the source of that attitude and the source of that um that new higher um more wise more creative uh, I'm, I'm failing at all words here as as i do on every show with Ibn arabi but <laughs> um but i hope that i'm making some point
0: <laughs> can i can i interrupt and give you an example of what please what? yes please um in the, in the chapter itself. You see, one of the things about the chapter is that it's comprehensive. So you can probably find something in there which will answer your question at whatever level the question is coming. So the thing that comes to mind about this particular matter is what Ibn Arabi says when um, the prophets Moses and Aaron were sent to the Pharaoh and how they were to deal with him. And he points out in the chapter that um, and this is following the Quranic uh, expo- exposition of it, that they were told to behave uh, gently with him. They were not to confront him,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and this was to do with with let's say the the secret of the transformation of the Pharaoh, um, which he goes into, and is, is a very daring exposition, but is the most exquisite. Description of how uh, an apparent, um, an apparently tyrannical figure, let's say, or a, a person opposed to the truth, we can put it in many different ways, but how a figure like that can be um, uh, transformed by gentle treatment, not by uh, confrontation, not by being told this, that, the other, no, by gentle treatment, by a slow process that works like yeast in the dough. He gives that example. Slowly, slowly, it starts to rise until it's ready for baking. Exactly the same way, the same process is going on internally in the pharaoh because of the way he's being treated. So you can see in one respect, it's a matter of taste, taste that prefers... Something closer to beauty than to majesty, let's say, which is its opposite, um, and also that that there are other qualities which start to filter in in this transformation process because of this. Do, does that help? That's in exactly your- that's exactly what yeah
3: <laughs> that that pretty much is exactly what I was I was I was speaking of.
0: Well, now I'm now I'm playing Ibn Arabi and rule, right?
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who am I then? So <laughs> <a> poor schlub. <laughs> You're
1: gonna be bumpy
0: <laughs> No, I,
3: my life has been changed for the better. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but yes, this uh, this book here, everybody, The Alchemy of Human Happiness, is uh, it's it's full of it's chock full of insights, and like you pointed out, um, numerous. Uh, uh, references to you know ancient traditions that are actually really fresh to to read his description like you're talking about him um of the pharaoh and then also of moses and how, how he treated his brother aaron and how it was you know, and it was just it's very very interesting um very interesting uh little tidbits but if you're going to read it you know and i we hope that you do read it because it is chock full of wisdom and you can sit there and read one paragraph over and over again and yeah. and it will you know it will it really opens your 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 eyes to a different and a more comprehensive way and of viewing the the generosity of being i guess as we've discussed before but there, just it's just so rich with all of these these um, footnotes, footnotes yeah. all of these footnotes on every page, so you have to go slow and just really take your time because these footnotes, like you were talking about in the opening of the show, um, Stephen, is that you know, every word can have so many d- meanings, and you really, um, you really lay out all of the different ways that a sentence could be read and what it, what it means, what it hints at, what it is in the Arabic, and how um, the kind of the puns and all the wordplay that that goes into it. So it's, uh you know, I, I, I read it, I read halfway through, I got to the first chapter of Adam and the moon <clears throat> and then I had to stop and then start it over again. And then when I made it through the second time I got, uh, I made it all the way through to the end. But as you said, uh, I think you had a, a group who were reading it for two years. Um, I, you know, that this is one of those books I'll, you know, I'll probably be reading for the rest of, rest of my life, and hopefully, not. Hopefully, you'll have more <laughs> books <laughs> released that we can, we can read <laughs> before that time. But, but yeah, we just thank you so much for your the work that you've done. It's, it's, it's obsessively fascinating. It would be a, a, a tragedy if more of Ibn Arabi's work wasn't, um, didn't make it out to, uh, you know, to the rest of the world
0: yeah this is a um, i mean this is a very special chapter and somehow somehow uh it does go to the heart of many things that that we find difficult the sicknesses that have overcome human beings for example um, mm. the there are keys to the to the um, medicine the necessary corrective medicine um, because in the end in the end this is a pointer to um a universal message. You mentioned the word tawhid earlier on, this very difficult word to translate, which on the one side, it means literally uh, making one, but is usually used to mean uh, the affirmation of unity. So uh, Ibn Arabi says there are 36 forms of it, 36 forms of affirmation of unity, which he is taking from the Quran so, where it says "La ilaha illahu," there is no god except He. Thirty-six times it's mentioned in the Quran in different forms. Um, so, this uh, this is like an example for him, or a, an, an expression of the the different approaches and uh, knowledges associated with. Uh, this affirmation of unity or realization of unity, because we can translate it both ways. So it's not just a verbal affirmation. It's also a a complete uh, seeing and uh, realization of the being, um, where unity does not mean some transcendental state. It means the very nature of things as being both Uh, one and multiple, simultaneously. And this chapter, I think, really points out that um, this is the key message brought by all prophets ever since Adam. This is what humanity has always been, uh, had explained to it because we need it explained. And this chapter really does lay it out in a very comprehensive form. Um, So I hope, like you, many people will read it. And and bear in mind the the saying of a um, sixteenth century follower of Ibn Arabi in the Ottoman world. Um, It's called Uftade, who said very simply in one of his poems, "Union is the only remedy for separation." It's
2: it's rhetorical, but it's also the truth. You know, it's it's kind of a perfect.
1: Uh, a a perfect way to close the show yes (laughs) yes okay well we've kept you longer than than we expected to Stephen. so i know know you've got somewhere to be something to do so thanks again for for joining us and uh recommend the book again we'll put a a link to it in the in the show description so everyone can check it out on uh the anka publishing website and yeah maybe maybe next time we talk we can discuss uh whatever new projects are coming out or you're working on Stephen. All right. Thank you, okay, man. great.
0: Thank you for your time.
1: Great. Thanks again, Stephen. Thank you, Thank you Stephen. Thank okay. you. Take care.